another ghost story for Christmas, and we are pleased to highlight the work of another local talent, in this case, author Shane Brown. Shane Brown has a PhD in film, television and media from the University of East Anglia in Norwich, with a thesis about representations of male queerness in silent and early sound film. In 2013, Shane published his young adult novel Breaking Point, dealing with the subject of homophobic bullying in schools. And to date, it has over thousands of Kindle downloads. A new edition was published in 2019, along with the sequel Breaking Down. His 2016 novel, The Lookout, is an adult ghost story set on the Norfolk coast. And also look out for titles like The Successor and The Pied Piper. More recently, he published the novel Welcome to Marlington, one of my favourite books of this year. Marlington, a thinly disguised version of Norwich, is a recurring setting for Shane's work, and the lives and deaths of its inhabitants are drawn with such skill and atmosphere that it rivals Stephen King's Maine, or Shirley Jackson's haunted New England. He's released ghost stories around Christmas for the past few years, and the most recent one, The Festive Symphony, is again a slice of Marlington's beauty and strangeness. And today we have Shane himself reading a story from 2021's ghost story collection, this one called Houses Never Forget. Every village has one, a house that is supposed to be haunted, or at the very least that kids think is haunted. Brandley was no different. The school was about a mile from where I lived and I would walk it every day, firstly with my mother and then after about the age of seven or eight I would go alone. About midway between the school and my home was the main village shop. Back then it was called Mace, then it went to Happy Shopper and then on to Spa. The names changed with great regularity, but the sweets and chocolates remained in the same place, and that was all us kids were interested in. I'd also passed the small doctor's surgery on my way to and from school, and there was a hairdresser's called the Beauty Parlour, which, looking at the hairdos of some of the people who went there, must have been a name given for the purposes of irony. But beyond those few commercial premises, the main street of Brandley was made up of houses, mostly old cottages, there was an occasional new house, but not many. This was, after all, 35 years ago. A number of the old cottages had names on the gates, or on the front door. I remember that one was called Orchard Cottage. Another was Primrose Cottage. There was also treetops, and at the end of the road on which I lived stood the hollies. None of the names were anything remarkable. Most villages probably had their own homes with names that were similar or the same but the one that I remember most was the Gables. I didn't really notice it when I was walking to school with my mum, but once I started doing the journey alone, passing it twice each day became a moment of dread for me. There was nothing particularly remarkable about the Gables. It was a decent-sized cottage dating from the early Victorian era. The exact year was given on the date stone, a few feet above the door. 
1847. Like most things about the Gables, it was something I would never forget. The front garden was mostly given over to a lawn, and there was various flowers planted around it, although the garden as a whole could have done with some care and attention. There were five windows at the front of the house. There was one each side of the door, presumably for what in the old days would have been viewed as a living room and a drawing room. On the next floor were three more windows, which I always assumed were for bedrooms. It was the window to the left of the front door that I will never forget. One day when I was about eight or so I went past the house and looked towards that window and on the sill was a skull. I had no idea whether it was real or not but I no doubt thought that it was. At that point I was frightened by the sight of it but was more curious. Even at that age I was wondering why someone would want that on their windowsill. Every day afterwards I would prepare myself as I approached the gables. I didn't want to look at the skull in the window, but for some reason I couldn't help but look across to see if it was still there or not. I must have mentioned the skull to a friend at school, because the other kids started talking about it, and rumours started spreading that the gables was haunted. There seemed to be no reason for this other than the fact that the skull was in the window, and I felt that I was somehow responsible for the reputation that the house was getting. After all, it was I who had first commented on it. But as the rumours spread, I dreaded walking past the house more and more. What had always looked like a pleasant cottage now seemed to take on a more sinister feel. It was almost as if the whole personality of the house had changed, as if the house had actually become haunted since the kids at school had started talking about it in that way. It got to the stage where I would stop walking a little way from the house, pull myself together and then run past it as quickly as I possibly could. I was pretty sure that I wasn't the only one who did so. This went on for several months, until one day when I started running past the house, the front door opened, and an elderly man stepped out onto the footpath in front of me. There was a car coming along the road, and so I couldn't run around him. I had to stop right in front of the house. The man was probably in his late 70s or early 80s, He was bent over and used a stick to help him walk. There was a cap on his bald head and a pair of glasses perched on the end of his nose. He stood in front of me on purpose and put his hand on my shoulder. So, he said, it's you, is it? I didn't really know what to say and so I quietly confirmed that yes, it it was me. You don't realise, he said. Houses never forget when you wrong them. He smiled at me, a smile that I could only see as evil even at that age, and then he walked slowly past me. I was shaking by this point. I was scared for all kinds of reasons. Firstly, I had stopped outside of the house that I dreaded passing so much, and the man himself seemed menacing, something like a villain from a Roald Dahl novel. And then there was what he had said, Houses never forget. What did he mean by that? Deep down, I think I was aware that he had probably just said it to frighten me. Perhaps he had seen me running past the house each day, but then the thought of him secretly watching me from behind one of the neck curtain top floor windows was also a scary one. If I had been thinking straight, I no doubt would have started running again. But instead, I turned towards the house. It was the first time that I had seen that window for months. I wished I hadn't looked, for the skull was no longer sitting with the side of its head along the window. 
Instead, it was staring straight at me, and the eyes seemed to be glowing. I took one look and ran as fast as I could, not just past the house, but all the way home. The next morning on my way to school, I felt that I had to stop and look at that window, just to make sure that I hadn't been seeing things. And there it was. The skull was facing me again, and those eyes were glowing again. I told my friend at school of the latest developments, about how the position of the skull had altered, and how the eyes glowed with a kind of white light. He told me that it hadn't been like that when he had come past. And this made it even more frightening, and made me the butt of jokes at school for the rest of the week. I was now obsessed with the idea that the house somehow felt wronged by me for having inadvertently starting rumours that it was haunted. I never looked in that window again. Time went on and I ran past the house each time I had to pass it. And then eventually there was the move to high school, which involved catching a bus each day, and I had very few reasons to pass the gables after that. I grew older and ultimately memories faded about the house that had frightened me so much as a kid. I went away to university when I was 18. I met a girl while I was there and we set up home together after we'd finished our studies. We got married, had kids, and we were separated by the time I was 40. By this point, I was a head teacher at a primary school near where we had made our home together. I needed a fresh start and I had the idea of moving back to Norfolk. I started looking for jobs and after a few weeks I saw that the position of headmaster at Brandley Primary School had become vacant. It seemed almost like fate that I could end up as headmaster at the school I had myself attended between the ages of 4 and 11. I applied and got the job. Returning to the village in which I had grown up was perhaps a little disorientating to start with. My parents had since moved about 10 miles away, and so I hadn't had any reason to return to Brandley in many years. I found myself a home in one of the new housing estates. It was a characterless place to live, and wouldn't have been my first choice, but I had to find somewhere quickly, and at the right price. The school hadn't changed a great deal, other than having had a couple of extensions built onto it since I was there as a pupil. These extensions were, of course, to accommodate the extra children that the housing estates had brought to the village. There was one teacher who had taught me as a nine-year-old who was miraculously still teaching there, but she said she didn't remember me, and for that I was oddly thankful. The autumn term passed with little incident. I got to know the staff and they got to know me. I got friendly with a few of them, but not too friendly. I knew from my previous position that a headmaster who grew too close to the other teachers was likely to run into difficulties, if and when they did something they needed to be talked to about. Nevertheless, on the final day of term, a young teacher knocked on my office door and asked me if I would like to join him and his wife for a drink that night. He said they would be at the Swan pub at 8 o'clock. I was welcome to join them, I was told, and I said that I would. The truth is that I had to ask someone who the teacher was. Clearly, he was one of those who had gone quietly about his business and had not said anything at staff meetings. Even so, I felt it was a little weird that I didn't recognise him at all. And none of my colleagues were able to decide who he might have been from my description. Three people gave me three different possible names, and none of them turned out to be correct. I arrived at the pub a little after the appointed hour and joined the couple at the table they were sitting at. 
Through some rather careful prodding on my part, I found out that the couple's name was Gerald and Elise Matthews. It seemed to me that Gerald seemed a very old name for a young man. Who called their kids Gerald these days? But I thought little of it. So, Gerald said, after we'd got our drinks, how has the first term been? Uneventful, thankfully, I answered. It's nice to have had a term of relative tranquillity before any drama starts. Yes, Gerald said, but there isn't often much drama in a place like Brandley. There were the ups and downs of Covid at the school last year, of course. The school was quite badly hit by it. And you know, of course, that one of the teachers, Melanie Bird, died from the virus. It was very sad, really. She was a much-loved teacher. Yes, I did know, I said, although I had been told by a parent rather than any of the teachers. She was relatively young, I think someone said. Fifty-ish. Mm, Mad as a hatter, if you ask me, but the kids thought the world of her, and I shouldn't speak ill of the dead. That's the second time that phrase has popped up this week, Elise said, sipping at her wine. One of my reception class came out with it a few days ago. A very strange thing for a five-year-old to say. It gave me the creeps, actually. Sometimes they just hear a phrase on the telly and pick it up for some reason, I said. I suppose so, Elise said, somewhat vaguely. What was your last school like? Not much different to this one, in all honesty. I only left because I separated from my wife and I thought a new start would do me good. So what are you up to over Christmas? Gerald asked me. Not much, I said honestly. My parents live locally, but they had already promised to go to my aunt's to stay this Christmas. It was arranged before I got the job here. I have been asked if I want to go, but I said no, I'm, I'm not really one for going away for Christmas. I like to be able to do what I want, when I want, rather than be awfully polite in the house of a relative I barely know. Then you must come to us, Gerald said. Mustn't he, Elise? Yes, Elise said, you must. Well, thank you for the offer, I said, but I couldn't possibly intrude on you on Christmas Day. Then how about Christmas Eve? Come round and have some drinks. There's only us two. I paused for a moment. I didn't really feel like being sociable, but saw no way out without upsetting Gerald and Elise. Thank you, I said. Where do you live? I cannot express the feeling of dread that came over me as soon as I had asked that question. I knew instinctively what the answer was going to be. We're on the main street, Gerald told me. A cottage called the Gables. You probably remember it from when you lived here as a child. I should have made some excuse not to go to Gerald and Elisa's house on Christmas Eve. I could have told them I was ill, or that I had gone with my parents to stay at my aunt's after all. And yet, for some reason, I didn't. I spent the days after the evening at the pub thinking of little else other than the Gables. It totally dominated my time. If I sat down to read or to watch a movie, my mind would quickly switch off from whatever it should have been doing in order to think about that cottage. I found that I was unable to sleep. It didn't matter what time that I got to bed. As soon as I closed my eyes, I would see that skull in the window, its eyes glowing. I tried taking sleeping tablets, but they did little good. They got me off to sleep quickly enough, but an hour or so later I would waken from a nightmare and that would be the end of my sleep for the night. I managed to catch up a little by sleeping during the afternoon, but even then I was only dozing. The strange thing was that I hadn't really thought about the Gables since my return to Brandley. I wondered if my mind had somehow blocked out my experiences as a child, and they had only resurfaced with a vengeance after I had become aware of the fact that I was actually to go there for an evening. 
The odd thing was that I hadn't even driven past the place since I had moved back to the area. I lived at the other end of the village and there was no real reason for me to drive down the main street. But I wasn't a young boy anymore. I shouldn't have been scared by the prospect of going into a house that I had inadvertently helped to give a reputation of being haunted. In fact, I should have been genuinely curious to see inside the old place at last and to lay my childhood demons to rest. After all, many people go to visit haunted houses and other locations for fun. But the thing that scared me wasn't really that skull in the window, but the man who had come out of the cottage when I was a child and told me that houses never forget. Those words somehow gave the house a personality. It made it seem like a living thing with a conscience and a brain. I wondered how many other kids he had scared over the years and also what had happened to him. I assumed that Gerald and Elise were not related to him in any way. Eventually, Christmas Eve arrived. The various last-minute bits and pieces for Christmas had been done. The cards I had forgotten to write had now been written and delivered. The final trip to the supermarket had taken place, and I was rather strangely looking forward to seeing absolutely nobody on the big day. I planned to get up at lunchtime, open presents, cook myself some Christmas lunch, and then get steadily pissed during the evening while watching whatever film was on the television. All I had to do to have this day of relative luxury was to get through a couple of hours at the Gables. It was about a mile away from my own house, and I decided it would be best if I walked there, as it would allow me to drink without worrying about staying within the legal limit for driving. No snow was forecast, and so it wasn't going to be a white Christmas in the traditional sense. But it was bitterly cold, and certainly a white frost would be covering the roofs, cars and gardens when the world woke up on Christmas Day. I was rather glad that it was so cold. At least it made me think about how cold I was instead of what horrors I might face when I arrived at my destination. Of course I was being silly thinking that there might be horrors. It was just a house, and it had a very pleasant, friendly couple living in it. About 20 minutes after starting out, I arrived at the Gables. It was the first time I could ever recall being outside of the house without running past it. There was no skull in the window, and instead there were Christmas lights around each of the windows on the ground floor. There are more around the front door. It looked welcoming, but so do all the cottages in the fairy tales we get told as children. And they are generally inhabited by witches. I took a deep breath and walked up to the front door and rang the bell. A couple of seconds later the door was opened by Gerald, who was wearing a suitably naff Christmas jumper and had a glass of wine in his hand. Come in, he said, a big grin across his face. I took another deep breath, knowing there was no turning back now. I smiled back at Gerald and went inside. Let me take your coat, Gerald said, closing the door behind me. I took off my gloves and shoved them in my coat pocket before handing it to him. Then I pulled off my shoes and left them near the front door. You must be freezing, Gerald said. Yes, I said, there's a good frost out there. It might well be icy in the morning. Well, come through into the lounge. I followed Gerald into the room where I had seen the skull when I was younger. It wasn't there now. Instead, the room was very welcoming. There was a log fire on the go, and Elise was curled up on a chair wearing a thick woolen jumper. Hello, she said. Glad you could make it. Sit down, you'll soon warm up in here. I thanked her and sat down on the sofa. Gerald asked me what I would like to drink. I settled on a brandy. He brought one over to me and then brought various bowls and plates of snacks in from the kitchen, 
and placed them on the coffee table. Help yourself, Gerald said, and I reached out and took a sausage roll, which was still hot from having been in the oven. Not homemade, I'm afraid, Elise said. What are you up to tomorrow, Gerald asked, sitting down on the sofa beside me. Nothing, I said. Absolutely nothing. I'm going to have a quiet day on my own. I'm rather looking forward to it, actually. Well, there's just two of us here, too, Elise said. Until the evening, at least. The next-door neighbours have invited us round for the evening. So we will get quietly drunk there. I don't blame you. Have you been inside here before? Gerald asked. Most people in the village seem to know the house by reputation, but haven't ever been inside. The previous owner has never made many friends, from what I can gather. What do you mean by it having a reputation? I asked. Oh, I thought you'd know all about it, having lived here when you were younger. It has a reputation of being haunted. But the previous owners said that they had never experienced anything of that sort while they lived here. And I even searched to see if anything bad had happened here. You know, murders and that kind of thing. Nothing. And we haven't had anything happen to us, have we, Elise? No, she said, while pouring herself another glass of wine. Nothing's happened to us. Quite disappointing, really. I like the idea of living in a haunted house. I think every village has one, don't you? Gerald said to me. A house that's reputed to be haunted, or an old woman who is believed to be a witch. That kind of thing. Probably some kids started the rumours decades ago, don't you think? I nodded. Yes, probably. And you know what it's like, Gerald went on. Houses never forget. My stomach churned as I heard the words. Well, what did you say, I stammered? I said that such rumours never really die out. They never get forgotten. Was that really what he said? That rumours don't get forgotten? I was certain that it wasn't. Perhaps my mind was playing tricks on me. Maybe I'd had one too many drinks during the afternoon on an empty stomach. I was surely imagining things. Are you all right, Gerald said to me. Brandy too strong. I forced a smile and gestured to my glass. No, not at all, I said, taking a mouthful. But you're right, these places do get reputations and they stick for some reason or other. Yes, we did a bit of digging at the library before we bought the place, though just to make sure that it didn't have a horrible history of some kind, didn't we, Elise? Yes, she said. We found nothing that might give it a reputation. Nothing at all, Gerald confirmed. Do you remember things being said about it when you lived here before? I shook my head. No, not that I can recall, I lied. But it was a long time ago, of course. Gerald exchanged looks with Elise, and I wondered if they knew that I was not telling the truth. I became uneasy at the thought that there might be something going on between them that I didn't know about. I had no idea as to what it could be. They were far too young to know about the kind of things that were said when I was a kid. And yet I felt as if I was being played in some way. It's odd though, Gerald was saying. Most of the kids all stay away at Halloween. They never come here to trick or treat. We watched them this year, didn't we, Elise? Yes, we did. They went to all the houses on the other side of the road and then crossed over and went to the house next door, and then they just ran past ours as fast as they possibly could before going to the neighbours on the other side. It was almost as if they felt there was someone or something about to pounce on them. Ooh! He made the supposed sound of a ghost while wiggling his fingers in the air. Then he looked across at Elise and she did the same. And then they did it together. It was bizarre and oddly grotesque. And then there's the teenagers, Gerald said. They tend to play pranks, the little devils. 
Another drink, Elise asked. Get him another drink, Gerald. I felt as if I should refuse, that I should make some excuse to be on my way. The evening was beginning to have a slightly surreal feel, but I tried to convince myself that it was only being caused by the alcohol. Even so, all I really wanted to do was go home. Something inside of me told me to get out of that house. Perhaps you should show him round the house, Elise said. Go on, Gerald, take him on a little tour. Gerald smiled at me, a forced smile if ever there was one. Would you like to see the rest of the house, he asked me. Yes, that would be nice, I said. The lounge seemed to be getting hotter by the minute. Or was it just my anxiety making me think that way? Either way, I was keen to get out of the room. Gerald got up from the seat and went to the door and I followed him. As we went out into the hallway, I felt that I could smell something burning. It wasn't the log fire in the lounge. This was a different smell. Well, this is the dining room, Gerald said. It's rather a nice room, I think. It was a second reception room when the place was built. A drawing room, I guess they would have called it. Yes, I said, trying to concentrate on what he was telling me. And then there's this rather nice date stone above the fireplace. Not that we use the fire in here anymore. 1846. A different date to the stone over the front door, which is a bit odd. The initials HNF were inscribed beneath the date. I asked Gerald if he knew what the initials stood for. No, we were going to try to find out, but we never got around to it. Perhaps we will one day. Come through into the kitchen. As we left the dining room, I realised what the initials could possibly stand for. Houses never forget. But that was a stupid idea. It was no doubt the name of the builder or maybe the designer of the building. And yet I couldn't put it out of my mind. All of these strange happenings over the previous half an hour or so were beginning to go around and round in my brain. And I was beginning to feel as if somehow I wasn't in control of what was happening. The kitchen was surprisingly large for a cottage of that size. And everything within it seemed strangely old-fashioned. I assumed that the retro design of the cooker and fridge freezer was intentional, probably to try and fit in with the cottage itself as much as possible. On the draining board were some items of crockery, all of which also seemed to be from a slightly different era. All the mod cons, Gerald said. We only just got the fridge freezer, we got it on HP at Rumbelows. Rumbelows? I knew that they had disappeared from the high street years before. Gerald looked at me as if I was going mad. Rumbelows, he asked me. What's Rumbelows? That's where you said you had got the fridge. No, Curry's. You must have misheard me. We got it at Curry's on Black Friday. Half price it was. Quite the bargain. Yes, I stammered. It, it, it sounds it. I'll take you upstairs, Gerald said, and led me back into the hallway and up the stairs. Despite being out of the lounge, the house seemed to be getting hotter. I put my hand on a radiator as we reached the top of the stairs and found it to be stone cold. So where was the heat coming from? Gerald led me into the first of the bedrooms. It was decorated as a nursery. There was super Ted wallpaper on the walls and a cot in the corner. I guess this is giving the game away, Gerald said, but Elise is, well, she's having a baby. Quite a while to go yet, of course, and she's hiding it pretty well but you'll need to find some cover for her during her maternity leave. Hope it won't be too much of a problem for you, but we're very happy. We've been trying for ages. I smiled and congratulated him. That's wonderful news, I said. I'm very pleased for you. 
Then he took me into the main bedroom. Again, I was struck by how old-fashioned the decoration was, and I suddenly remembered that I hadn't seen Super Ted on the television for years. Had it been remade recently? I hadn't heard anything about it, not that I would be the target audience, of course, and it seemed that nearly every old series had been rebooted recently. The house is looking wonderful, I said, almost on autopilot by this point, and just wanting to get through the rest of the evening and then get home. Thanks, it's taken us a little while to get it how we want it, of course. Now come back down and have another drink. Can I use your bathroom first, I asked. Of course. Gerald showed me the bathroom door and then went downstairs. I quickly went into the bathroom and locked the door. I staggered over to the bath and sat down on the side of it, trying to make sense of what was going on. Part of me just wanted to go downstairs and run out of the house and never come back. But I was the head teacher, and what would Gerald and Elise say about me at the school if I did something like that? I didn't want the teachers thinking I had lost my mind. The heat in the house seemed to be getting worse, and so I went over to the sink and turned on the cold tap, splashing the water on my face to try to cool down. I realised that I was sweating and my shirt was sticking to my back. I took it off and used the water to wash and cool down my body. As I dried myself with the towel, I realised just how ill I was feeling. The sick feeling was no doubt partly due to the heat and partly due to panic. Something was wrong and I needed to get out of there. I looked at myself in the mirror above the sink. I looked terrible and as I ran my fingers through my now wet hair, I noticed that my hands were shaking. Putting my shirt back on, I looked once again into the mirror, but the face that stared back at me was not mine. It was the face of the man who I had met coming out of the house when I was a boy. There was no mistaking it. The face was one that I had never forgotten and that had haunted me in nightmares even in my adult years. Houses never forget, he mouthed, although he made no sound, and then he grinned, showing off his chipped and blackened teeth. And then the smile gave way to a laugh, A laugh that didn't just come from the mirror, but from the entire bathroom. No, the entire house. The structure of it trembled with the volume, and I had seen and heard enough. I had no idea whether I was being the victim of some horrendous practical joke, or whether I was losing my mind, and I didn't care if I was going to be the laughing stock of the school when it returned after the Christmas break. My main aim was just to get out of the house. I unlocked the bathroom door and ran down the stairs as fast as I could. The front door was already open, and I ran through it onto the street and across the road, feeling some degree of protection from the houses on that side of the street. When I turned to look back at the gables, I saw that it was not there. The house I had entered had gone, and it had been replaced by a property that couldn't have been more than about 10 or 15 years old. What was more, I realised that I was wearing my coat and shoes, both of which should still have been in the house that I had just left, for I had not stopped to put them on when I had escaped. I wanted to run home, but I couldn't. I felt dizzy and disorientated. It was difficult to walk, and the journey that had taken me just 20 minutes earlier in the evening must have taken me an hour to complete on the way home. I stumbled into my own house and almost fell onto the sofa. My exhaustion must have taken over at that moment, for I woke up on Christmas morning just as the sun was coming up. I got up off the sofa and walked over to the window, where I opened the curtains to reveal a bright and crisp frosty morning. On Boxing Day I got the courage to get into my car and drive along Brandley's main street. 
I wanted to see the gables or whatever was in its place in the daylight. I was confused and I was frightened. What had happened to me and what had happened to Gerald and Elise? When I drove past on that morning, I saw that it was indeed replaced by a more modern building. The gables was gone. When I returned to the school in the first days of the new year, I found out that there were no teachers at my school named Gerald and Elise. No wonder why I hadn't recognised them. But how was that possible? It was almost as if I had dreamt the whole thing. When my secretary came in, I asked her if she recognised the names. There was a young couple teaching here with those names when I started as secretary, she said, but that was a long time ago. What were they like, I asked. I don't really remember. I was only here for a term or so before they... Before they what? Well, before they died. There was a house on the main street, an old cottage it was, quite well known among the villagers. It had quite a reputation. The kids made out it was haunted. The man who had owned it, I don't know his name, had passed away and this couple, Gerald and Elise, had bought it when they moved to the area to start work here. But the man who had lived there before, he had rubbed the kids up the wrong way, you know. They used to go there and stare at the house to see if they could see the ghosts and he'd chase them off. And so the children started playing tricks on him, mostly knocking on the front door and running off, getting him covered in flour on Halloween when they were trick-or-treating, that kind of thing. Horrible, but not dangerous. But when he died, the kids didn't stop their pranks, even when the new couple moved in. I suppose they took it in their stride. I'm not even sure some of the kids realised the old man had passed away. But one of the pranks got out of hand. It was on Christmas Eve and a couple of lighted fireworks were shoved through the letterbox. The place caught fire. It had to be pulled down. I listened to the story in horror. If I hadn't told my friend about the skull in the window, then the cottage wouldn't have got the reputation it did as a haunted house and those pranks would never have happened. What happened to the couple of teachers who lived there, I asked. Did they die in the fire? Oh yes, a great shame. A nice couple they seemed to me from what little I had seen of them. They were expecting a baby too from what I remember. But that only came out afterwards. That's the problem with kids starting rumours and saying things that aren't true. They don't realise the consequences there might be further down the road. Some stories have an element of truth about them. This one certainly does. In fact, much of the first section of the story you've just heard is true. I lived in a village when I was a kid, and there was a house like the one described in the story you've just heard. I did used to run past it every day to and from school, and there was a skull in the window, and I thought the eyes glowed at me. And then one day I bumped into the old man who owned the house when he was coming out and I was running past. But he didn't tell me that houses never forget. But that house and the meeting I had with the owner outside of it were enough to act as inspiration for the story. But I am pleased to tell you that the house in question is still standing. So thanks to you for listening, and thank you very much to Shane for recording that for us. And all of his work can be found on Amazon.com, and it's very reasonably priced, and just in time for Christmas. And we look forward to seeing you again next week for another in the Hallowed History Strands of Ghost Stories for Christmas.
feel free to write to us at hallowedhistories at gmail.com and like, rate, review and subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you very much.